Hello and welcome to the Ecomedics podcast where we explore how the health of our planet affects the health of the people on it and how we as healthcare professionals have the power to lead the way in curbing the climate crisis and to be pioneers in building sustainable healthcare systems. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Ashling, a junior doctor and member of the Ecomedics team. And we have an incredible lineup of guests who will be joining me on each episode to share their experience and expertise about health and the environment. Today on the podcast, we have Harriet Hopp joining us, a professor of anesthesiology currently based in Utah in the United States. Harriet is a highly accredited academic dedicated to research in the fields of surgical wound management, perioperative infection control and gender equity in medicine. She has had a plethora of academic positions in her career, contributed over 80 peer-reviewed journals among numerous other publications and has presented her work across the globe. More recently, Harriet has become involved in some fascinating research around environmental sustainability in anaesthetics. With the healthcare sector moving increasingly towards the use of single-use disposable supplies in the name of infection control, she is exploring environmental impacts of the rise in healthcare-generated waste and the long-term costs this will have on our planet. Harriet, you are a very busy woman, so I am so grateful to you for making the time to join me on the Ecomedics podcast today. I am so happy to be here because I love talking about single-use disposables. Fantastic. I can't wait to get started. I do hope that introduction has done you justice because your portfolio is so impressive and I'm in awe of just the sheer quantity that you've achieved so far in your career. (laughs) The good news is if you stay at it long enough, you'll accumulate some accomplishment. It's just the way it works. That's very reassuring. (laughs) Your specialty is anaesthetics, but infection control is a big part of what you do and the research you carry out. Where did that particular topic of interest come from? Uh, When I graduated from medical school, I actually started as a surgery registrar. So um, I did a year of surgery training and then a year and a half of research in a surgery lab that was called the Wound Healing Laboratory that was focused on measuring oxygen in wounds and preventing surgical site infection. Um, And during that time, I realized, A, that I didn't want to be a surgeon and B, that I wanted to be an anesthesiologist and C, that the people that the an important component of infection control is host defenses and that the patient's physiology, um, uh, what kind of blood flow is getting to the wound, all, uh, you know, uh, how prepared are they to defend against the microorganisms that um, always get into the wound regardless of what you do with asepsis, who's in charge of your physiology ensuring surgery? It's the anesthesiologist. And the surgeon I was collaborating with, when I said to him, hey, I think I wanna go into anesthesia, he said, oh, that is the best thing because I've been trying to recruit anesthesiologists to do wound healing, but now I'm going to take a wound healer and she's going to become an anesthesiologist because we're going to make wound outcomes a big outcome for surgery for anesthesia, not just surgery. And that's what's happened, which is really exciting. You're also an adjunct professor in biomedical engineering. Could you please tell us what that entails? Sure. And I I will say I have never taken an engineering course in my life. So I sometimes feel a little imposter syndrome about this. But um, as I said, um, I started out in research and this was really my research focus for 20 years, measuring oxygen in wounds. And we tested and worked on a number of different systems for measuring oxygen. And we had a number of biomedical engineering graduate students in the lab. And that was how I originally got my um, appointment in biomedical engineering. And so um, I'm not really an engineer, but I bring that sort of clinical perspective and I, I'm pretty good with my hands so I can kind of figure out how to do things. So that's how I ended up there. And now I'm really glad I did because it turns out if you want to be sustainable in anesthesiology, you need biomedical engineers on your side because you need to innovate how we are designing our products so that they can be reprocessed. And uh, that does seem to be a huge part of anesthetics as well, knowing your way around the machinery, knowing yes. exactly, obviously they're, they're things that are keeping the patient alive alongside your expertise, <laughs> but knowing so much about that. And I, I will say, we actually have a lot of engineers in anesthesiology. I think that what we do, right, it's engineering. I say, I, I've got all, I, when I started anesthesiology, I hadn't really thought about 
the degree to which I would have all these monitors. And many of them were new at the time I started. Pulse oximetry had just come out, right? All that stuff. But um, it's so exciting to sort of beat to beat monitor everything that's happening to your patient. And that's really engineering. And we kind of love engineering and anesthesia. And to clarify for those who may be confused about the different terms being used here, anesthesiology and anesthesiologists are American terms that are synonymous with the terms anesthetics and anesthetists here in the UK. All equally as challenging to say and spell, which is not the most helpful. <laughs> but you guys add that extra A-E that we just use an E, so we're better, easier. The debate continues about spelling. <laughs> exactly. Of course, the thing we're exploring through this podcast is healthcare sustainability, something which you've explored in the context of both infection control protocols and in anaesthetics itself. Where did this research stem from? Um, so as with many things, uh, really from someone who worked in my lab, who is Jody Sherman, um, who way back, gosh, 17 years ago, came to our lab as a, a surgery resident, uh, but then eventually went into anesthesiology and came into the lab studying wound healing, but had a real interest in sustainability. And she's become really, I think, one of the leading lights of sustainability for anesthesiology. And um, probably a decade ago, she said, you know, Harriet, single-use disposables are a problem. And I agreed with her completely. They clearly have, there are very few places where they matter in the, in the practice of anesthesiology, um, anesthetics. And um, uh, so she basically recruited me and said, we need someone with, now I don't get recruited as an anesthesiologist. I get, we need someone with wound healing expertise, with surgical site infection expertise, who can really talk to the infection control people about sustainability. So uh, Jody is now an associate professor at Yale in the in in the anesthesiology department. So she just pulled me into that, and I thought, wow, I have to be here because um, we know that you know the operating room is a huge contributor to environmental harm, and infection control in the operating room is a major contributor to that operating room. And um, why is there this move towards single-use equipment? Wow, great question. And uh, there's a lot of things that have been pushing that way. Um, we start with a perception that single-use disposables are safer. They cause fewer infections. There's actually no evidence for the most part to support that contention, but people believe it really strongly. And so that that has really been sort of a, you know, it's cleaner if it's single-use, so we're gonna go to single-use. Um, that is, I, I will say, I do not want currently a multiple use intravenous catheter or endotracheal tube. Those make me kind of go, oh, I'd like those to be clean. Um, but we know that we have reusable um, scalpels, although the blade is disposable, but the, the handle, we have a lot of reusable surgical instruments. Um, obviously a stainless steel IV catheter doesn't seem very attractive and actually it probably wouldn't work very well. Um, but you could engineer IV catheters to be reusable. I'm not sure that's where we want to put our effort because they're small and it's complicated, it turns out, when, when it's actually sitting in the bloodstream. Uh, but people sort of took that, oh, it's better to be non-reusable for things like IV catheters and endotracheal tubes. And they started kind of going, well, then it probably is better to have disposable uh, OR linens. You should wear a disposable gown. We should have disposable drapes. And then maybe the laryngoscope should be disposable. That's the most recent kind of really drive. Um, and um, it's it just not supported by evidence. So I think that, that oh, it's better for infection control is, is, a, it, is, a, is a real driver. And it's not based in data. And one reason it's not based in data is, let's say I want to investigate, it does using disposable hats as opposed to cloth hats reduce infection rates. I'd have to do a randomized control trial with 500,000 to a million patients, right? And I'm randomizing them to have the anesthesia team and the surgery team and the nursing, everybody in the OR wearing cloth hats or disposable hats. Huge amount of effort to do that study, right? It would take forever. And the, we, we've got a, currently the infection rate is around 2% overall for surgical sites. Um, obviously, there's some that are higher risk and some that are lower risk, but overall 2%. Um, if we had an impact from cloth hats versus disposable hats, and there's some evidence that maybe cloth hats would turn out to be better because we don't rub them on the patient's wound, right? They're on your head and they probably contain hair better than the non-disposable, than the disposable hats. Um, it would only be a really small difference, right? And so when you think about how many patients we harm, how many people we harm with disposable hats versus how many people we help with disposable hats, assuming we could show the benefit, it would just 
clearly favor not disposable hats. So uh, one of the problems is I can't easily do a study that disproves what people believe. And so they hold on to that belief. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this because it's, it is such a common thought. I mean, maybe a bit of an accepted outlook that disposable equals best for infection prevention control, but you're just completely debunking that. Yeah, but I, I hear two things. One is no cost is too high for infection control. And I'm like, on the face of it, that is ridiculous. But I have heard that many times. If we can prevent one infection, no cost is too high. We don't say that for almost anything else, but for, for some reason for that. And then the other thing is sort of the ick factor. People go, I kind of would prefer it if people use single use on me. Um, but again, not supported by evidence. It's just kind of that society we've developed where all through society, we like disposable things, right? We don't want to reuse things. Partly it's just a pain to clean them, whatever. So, so that's one driver. The second driver is uh, the perception that they're cheaper. And it is true that a disposable hat costs less to acquire than a cloth hat. A disposable laryngoscope costs less to, to acquire than a reusable laryngoscope because the disposables can be made cheaply out of low quality you know, stuff. You don't, need, right? you're gonna, you're, you don't need to be able to reprocess them. But of course, when you use a single use disposable, you have to buy it over and over and over again. And what people forget is that Yes, it costs more to buy a cloth gown, but you're going to use it 75,000 times. Oh, sorry, 75 times, not 75,000. That would be awesome. You're going to use it 75 <laughs> times. So you split that cost. You divide that cost by 75 to find out actually how much it costs to acquire. And somehow people forget that. And interestingly, during um, early in the spring of 2020, we had a difficulty getting the infection control gowns, not the sterile ones, but just what people wore into rooms, the plastic blue ones that make you hot. Um, and so they invested in some of these cloth gowns. And the reason I know they can be washed 75 times is because that's how many times these can be washed. Um, and when that was announced, I emailed our CMO and said, hey, you know, this would be a great time to start investing more in, in you know, cloth over disposable. And he said, oh, no, 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 this is not going to continue because they are more expensive. We're never going to stay. This is just a pandemic thing. Now it's, you know, two years later, which is hard to believe. And it turns out we're starting to invest in them more because they're cheaper. And what about the environmental side of things? When it when you factor in things like washing um, and the materials that are used, what kind of impacts does disposable versus reusable have? So evaluating that requires a life cycle analysis where you look at what are the resources, then you got to transport it, then you got to manufacture it, then you got to transport it, then you got to use it, then you got to transport it and waste it. Um, and when you do a life cycle analysis, for example, for cloth gowns, it virtually universally comes out in favor of cloth gowns. They produce less CO2, they use less water, they use less energy, uh, and, they, and they perform equally well. Interestingly enough, if you live in Australia, the disposable gowns come out better in life cycle analysis because you're using brown coal. And brown coal is such a high impact that the disposables are better because the brown coal energy you use for reprocessing those gowns is so such a problem. Now, I don't think they should use disposable gowns in Australia. I think they should change their energy source, right? So one of the things in LCAs is that every, every health system has to evaluate their own costs, right? That, um, you know, my, <clears throat> the University of Utah has been a leader in sustainability and uh, we have very green energy. And so reprocessing for us is relatively inexpensive because we have green energy. Whereas if you're a place that hasn't done that yet, it's going to be more expensive compared. I will say one thing that worries me a little bit about um, reprocessing for us is I live in a desert. And in fact, I live in the American West, which is in just a cataclysmic drought. Um, and so I worry, well, is this use of water to launder them worse than the use of water to, to um, manufacture them? And the reality is most of them aren't manufactured in the West. We're probably getting them from China. And so there could be an analysis here that getting someone else to use their water so we don't have to use our water could be better, even though the water use is higher for disposables. So it's a really complicated thing.
I really hear that it is so complicated. And you mentioned there a bit about the research and the scale of the research that it would be needed to even prove or to show or for those facts to be, I guess, put into perspective and taken seriously. Is that something that is going to hinder on a large scale health services being able to change practice and try and slow down the use of single use? Um, I think it is a hindrance, but the thing that gives me hope is um, in almost every institution that has trialed reusables, they save money. And honestly, if I think about what drives a hospital, a healthcare system, saving money is huge. And so if you can get some pilot projects where people save money, I think it just, it, you start to build momentum. People are like, oh, we save money. Like, hey, this is a good thing. And we can tout the good we're doing for the environment, which is also a good thing. Um, you know, what we found is we do, we, we try to prioritize, like, what are the most important things to do? So, um, and then we try to do them at, we, we, we have like the big main hospital operating room, but we also have lots of ambulatory centers that are, that are smaller or various small operating rooms. Like, you know, our cancer hospital has eight operating rooms. So it's a smaller space. We try to trial things in those places so that we can work out some of the kinks so that it's easier to educate people. So they get used to it. Um, and then when it's happened there, what happens is it just, people just start to go, Oh, could we do that? That seems good. I worked there one day and it's so much better than what we're doing. So I think that's a, so there's some great strategies, tactics for, okay, how do we get this to be acceptable? Um, so I've talked about two things, cost and it, perception of infection control benefit. There's a whole bunch more things. So can we talk about those a little bit to, just to sort of see why we pushed it that way? So the next thing I'm going to bring up is that reprocessing is a little bit complicated, right? Like if you're going to reprocess, you have to have a place in your hospital to reprocess. And most, especially new hospitals, aren't built with great reprocessing because they've gotten so used to single-use disposables. Um, if you're using single-use disposables, you can go to just-in-time ordering so that they just send you what you need on a monthly basis and you know how much you need and you can adjust it for annual variations in surgeries that you're doing. And then you just need a place to keep it, store it. You don't store that much. Now, when you go to reprocessing, now you need a space where you do it and you need to train people and you need to oversee them because one of the things that can happen if you're doing your own reprocessing is one of your employees messes up and then you have an infectious outbreak on your hands and that's a horrible thing to have, right? So there are some companies- In a way, you're almost outsourcing it. Yes. By doing single use, taking the responsibility and the labor out of the, of the exactly. picture. Exactly, I am outsourcing. Now there are some um, companies that reprocess that are, are springing up and that are doing some, some really good work of, hey, we'll reprocess, we'll take that away from you so you don't have to have oversight. Uh, I will say the manufacturing organizations are working hard to make that not happen. So I think that's a place where some legislation that there is legislation proposed in the US that would make reprocessing sort of a norm. So that that is a problem, but people don't like doing processing. And there's a second layer on that, which is uh, accrediting organizations. So, you know, they go looking around and see what things are doing. And if you are doing single use disposables and they're neatly stacked on their shelves and the packages are intact, they're gonna be like, check, you're doing a good job. If you're doing reprocessing, they're going to look at it really carefully. And if they see anybody doing anything that's not perfect for the rules, uh, you're going to get, um, you know, dinged for that. And you're going to have to to fix that. And so when that happens, so for hospitals, it's like, we're just going to single-use disposables because then there's no chance that we're going to get a problem, um, a finding. I think the, probably the equivalent organization that we have here is the CQC, the Quality uh, yeah. I can't remember what it stands for, actually. But they are sort of the the dreaded organisation that comes around and you know they're going to nitpick. So you're you're suggesting that they're that's giving them more things to look at, really. Exactly. And more chance to pick apart what, what's happening on the wards. And a few years ago, I talked to someone from the Joint Commission, which is one of ours, you know, a, a, someone who's sort of a leader in the Joint Commission who was one of our meetings. And I brought this up and he said, well, one of the challenges is we are looking at individual patient safety, not public health. I was like, okay. Um, and I, I heard that they are starting to recognize the importance of sustainability and that they are really driving um, practices that aren't overall beneficial to the world um, and aren't necessarily even beneficial to individual patients depending on the item. And so 
you know, that's a place. So I, I get why a lot of people are going to single use disposables. I'm going to tell you that just in time ordering is vulnerable, right? That linear supply chain. Um, so you may remember March, April, May, 2020, there's a worldwide shortage of PPE, right? Why is that? Well, N95s, uh, the vast majority of them at that time were being made in Wuhan, China before the pandemic. So obviously they stopped making N95s um, and there's a disruption of transport. And suddenly, not only do we need what we, not only can we not get what we normally order, we need six times as much. We're using, you know, we used to use N95s a little bit, but not that often, some of the time. Now we're using them on every case, every day. Um, how are we gonna get enough? And so it highlights if you could use reusables. And in fact, my department, department, my chair in January of 2020, being foresightful for some reason, which is great, ordered a bunch of uh, elastomeric half mask respirators with these special, you know, the things that you wear for construction. Um, and so our department had those and wasn't using N95s and that was a blessing to the hospital because we weren't using them up. Um, now that supply chain has been restored and we're okay. We've sort of upped our uh, manufacturer and there's been, you know, that's the idea of local manufacturing, which is by the way, more sustainable in some ways, right? You don't have as much transport. So um, that just-in-time ordering feels really comfortable. We can do it. Nobody's gonna get mad at us. We always have what we need, except it gets disrupted. Um, and by the way, climate change means it's gonna be disrupted more. We had a huge saline shortage in the United States after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, because it turned out that's where most people got their saline from. And the factory was devastated by the hurricane. So uh, allowing all the manufacturing to be single use, and obviously saline is single use in that you give it like, you can't, but, uh, but nonetheless, this idea of we're going to only have one place doing it is a problem. And it's an interesting thought thinking about the whole supply chain and, and how that can be disrupted and outsourcing has that sort of disadvantage to it. And you mentioned just there about COVID, which of course is very, very present and, and res resonates with a lot of people, very relatable at the moment with the world's highest use of PPE in history. Um, for many of us in the healthcare sector, even those who aren't even particularly invested in sustainability as a concept, it has been painful getting through the amount of plastic we have needed and are still needing to use. But the overall outlook, I would say, is that it has been needed. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on our approach to infection control in the context of COVID and if, from an environmental perspective, if it could have been streamlined or if it was necessary to be using all of these aprons and gloves and masks. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, no, you, I mean, it's an airborne disease, so you need masks. Um, it turns out there is much less surface transmission. You know, initially, n most of our diseases like COVID, it was unexpected that it was an airborne disease. Um, but so the whole cleaning of all the surfaces and everything turns out to be much less important than everyone thought. Um, I still think I want to not get the flu, so I'm still going to be careful about doing hand sanitizing. Um, and so that kind of drove a lot of that. Um, I will also say, I think there's some hopeful things. Uh, people realize that the ability, you know, I, I reuse my masks. I let them air out for some period of time before I reuse it, not, not necessarily in the OR. Um, I, I've done some of that in the OR, I will say. Um, I, I don't know exactly if that's the right thing, but certainly wearing a mask every day um, originally, I, you know, I had cloth masks and I thought, oh, this is great. We can kind of reuse the cloth mask. Now it turns out you really want like these KN95s. But I will also say we could design those to be reprocessed, right? And that actually gets me to the next thing, which is industry has lots of things that drive it to push single-use disposables. Um, in the U.S., if I want to make something reprocessable, it costs about a million dollars. I don't know what it costs now, but at some point it costs about a million dollars to get the additional approval that this device can be reprocessed. So most companies say, I'm just gonna make it single use disposable even if it's reprocessable because then I don't have to do that extra expense in time. And then the second thing is, while it is cost beneficial for me as a health system to purchase reusables, companies make a huge amount of money on disposables, right? So they want disposables. Disposables are cheap to manufacture and they keep selling them and selling them and selling them. If they make something durable, they don't get to keep selling it to you. 
Um, so I was, I was going to ask that question, whether do you think profits and contracts play a big part in the move towards single use? Um, I, I don't know that they were the beginning of the move. I think a lot of that move came from that whole, a lot of it is really infection control and convenience and industry was very happy to jump on that bandwagon, right? And they now really push that. Um, and they have incentives to make things that are hard to clean. So duodenoscopes are an example, which are, you know, the little endoscopes that you can look in um, intestines. There have been some infectious outbreaks from those that were being reused. And so now there's a disposable version. It's a fiber optic endoscope. I mean, it is a ridiculous thing to have be disposable from my perspective. Um, but when you look at the way it's designed, it's impossible to clean almost. But it wasn't inevitable that it had to be designed to be impossible to clean. So now what we need is incentives that you have to make it reprocessable. And, you know, there's a couple of things. One is, uh, what if everyone was required to show how you could reprocess something or why it could not be reprocessable? Um, then everybody would have that expense and there wouldn't be that incentive not to reprocess. I'm hearing a desperate need for sort of creativity in this field to ensure that we are able to do things that are more environmentally sustainable. But there's that added layer that you mentioned just there about incentivizing it and when you've got these big companies that are, have profits in mind, it's it's something that's really important to be able to lobby against them. And one of the main reasons is we've, you've kind of mentioned before is about this cost for healthcare services. So if there is that incentive and there's a way to reduce their costs as well as being sustainable, then that's kind of the trick to it really. Yeah. Yeah. But I think part of it is, and this is part of why I said yes to this podcast, just getting the message out there, uh, disposable things aren't necessarily better. Like it feels like it's safer, but it really isn't. And then, you know, how do we get people to band together? Hey, we want reusable things because for us, they are cheaper and you need to provide them. And there is a potential profit model for companies, right? They can set up sort of reprocessing centers, right? Hospitals would love to outsource the reprocessing, I think generally. Um, and you could make that uh, an attractive option. Yep, it's going to be durable and we're going to support you in reusing it and doing that safely. So if it is the case that these big manufacturing organizations or these companies that could offer the, that sort of cleaning system, if they're so powerful, what kind of power or what kind of chance do health professionals stand in lobbying? <laughs> For example, if, if we were to get together in my hospital and lobby our managers to say, you know, we need this, but we're up against these really powerful businesses, what what kind of what kind of chance do we have really? And how how would you suggest we get around that? And I appreciate that's a really difficult question to answer. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of sometimes I get a little bit like discouraged, like, oh, I'm never gonna do this. But I think education. And then I think health systems have power, right? They make purchasing decisions. Um, and um, if we could convince, like if we get new players in there who are creating reusable things, right? So this takes biomedical in innovation. And I do think COVID spawned a lot of people trying to come up with better reusable PPE, better reusable stuff, recognizing, you know, I mean, I don't know if, if the, but I remember all these people trying to figure out how to sterilize how to re-sterilize N95 safely without making them not work. And it turns out the ones, are, they, it doesn't work super well. Um, so that's why I just went to, I'm just going to let it air for a while and then it'll be safe. Um, I, I, I will say if I took care of a patient with COVID, I would just throw it away afterwards. That seemed rational. Um, so I think companies will have a competitive advantage if they can offer this, if health systems recognize the value of it. I think accreditation organizations, if they could get on board with this idea of um, cost benefit analysis that in, it intentionally incorporates environmental cost. Um, and so that feedback they give to the health systems isn't just, oh, go to single use disposable because we won't give you any um, findings, but rather, hey, if you aren't doing things that reduce the environmental impact of your effect of your work, then we are going to have a finding against you. They could really drive. Like what, you're using disposable um, um, linens? Now you're gonna have to justify that. Why haven't you gone to the reusables? What are your barriers? How, you know, we're gonna, 
we're going to come back in two years and you better have made some progress in this area. I'd love to see that. I don't see it happening anytime soon, but we're going to keep talking about it. No, that's a, I, I, that's a really interesting concept, actually. Um, we were talking just there about the CQC and these organisations that, you know, ensure quality control and um, good delivery of healthcare based on lots of tick boxes and based on lots of parameters. And I like that concept of adding sustainability in as one of those parameters that we need to be ticking boxes on and hitting targets on. Yeah. Holt Doctors is the number one agency for doctors seeking locum work. They have more independent five-star reviews than any other agency. The team at Holt are some of the most experienced in the industry, dedicated to finding doctors the jobs they really want. Holt has many exclusive contracts across the UK, from Highland to Ireland and everything in between. This means that not only are they the best agency to find you your perfect job, but they help doctors to get ahead in their career. Holt cares for those who care. To find out how Holt can help you, join them now at holtdoctors.co.uk or download their app. I think there's an individual level um, issue, which is, which requires education as well. Uh, You know, when I'm doing anesthesia, when I'm providing care to a patient, I have a huge variety of options. How do I make a choice about what I do? Well, every hospital tends to have its own, like, here's how we do anesthesia. And you kind of think your residents all think, oh, that's just the way everybody does it. And then they go somewhere else and they're like, they do it completely differently because there's so many options and it just depends on you know, which things did your institution help develop and where do people come from and, and wh- where did they get to? Um, I would love to see individuals taking this into account when they make their selections, right? There's been some like, hey, take costs into account. Well, environmental cost is one of the costs. So, I mean, the big thing there is desferane, right? Like if you want to talk about bad for the environment, desferane and nitrous oxide are bad for the environment. Um, and so there's where education efforts can work, right? There's many other options. Why are you choosing those? Let's get rid of them. So, And you've done some incredible work and advocating about the avoidance of vaporized anesthetics. Could you please give us an insight about this? So I, I will say it's, uh, I stopped using nitrous oxide long before I realized it was a greenhouse gas and I have never ever used desflurane because I just didn't like it as a drug for whatever reason, it, it didn't exist as a drug when I started and I didn't see it had a benefit. So, so I wasn't even environmentally conscious and I was doing the right thing. Um, um, I, I think part of it is people just haven't been aware. And then, so, and it's only in the last decade that really the data have come out that like these vapor anesthetics are greenhouse gases. Um, and people had kind of gotten into habits. Um, it turns out if you educate people, you can change their behavior. Um, our current effort, and we're trying to get desflurane off the formulary, we will not be the first institution to do that. We will also not be the last. And what we did was our, we had a few residents who did a, a QI project, and they created little stickers that they put on the desflurane vaporizers that have a QR code that take them to education. And it just kind of says, did you know this is bad for the world? Um, and so now we are being successful at taking them out of several of our anesthetizing locations. And it's sort of expanding as people just stop using it. Um, and our goal is that we're gonna take it off the formulary because people have stopped using it. Um, I, I will say we, we first did this about 12 years ago. We just had my chair get up and say, hey, you shouldn't use desferane. And we actually cut our desferane use. We saved $328,000 in desferane. We cut our use in, by more than half. Uh, we doubled the amount of isoflurane, which cost us $5,000 and uh, obviously had a lower impact on uh, the environment. So they're like, just telling people it's bad is a really good way to make them stop using it. Just raising, raising the awareness. Raising the awareness. And then the other thing is, let's get rid of vapor anesthetics altogether. I still use them some, but uh, total intravenous anesthesia is clearly lower environmental impact. Um, now, here's an advantage I have. I work at the University of Utah, which helped develop remifentanil. And our TIVA is done with uh, propofol and remifentanil. 
it turns out propofol by itself doesn't have analgesics effects. And so if you don't mix it with some kind of opioid, it's not a very satisfying anesthetic, but the propofol remifentanil Tiva is great. Um, and pre-pandemic, we ran about 70 or 80% Tiva anesthetics. Um, super easy to do, really nice change. Um, and so we weren't really vapor focused. And then during the pandemic, our pharmacy was worried because propofol was one of the things on worldwide shortage because they were using so much in ICUs for patients who had COVID. Um, and so we cut our propofol use by 90% overnight. But now we have a generation of residents who spent a year using only vapor anesthetics and have forgotten about Tiva. And so we're kind of slowly having to go back to that, um, which also highlights this problem. And it turns out propofol takes a long time to manufacture, like a long time. So you can't up that supply quickly. Anyway, so that just shows how complicated it is. But I think the idea is just educating people I spend a lot of time also educating people. You do not have to have every drug drawn up before the case. From an infection control perspective, that's not a great idea. From a safety perspective, it makes you more likely to grab the wrong syringe. And uh, from an environmental perspective, now you're wasting drugs and putting them in the river. And what is the, just to go back to the vaporized versus yeah, intravenous, sure. what is the actual difference in environmental impact? It's huge. Um, so, and there, um, this is something that uh, Jody Sherman created at Yale. There's a little app called Gassing Greener where you can go and put in what you're doing and it'll tell you. But um, in our year where we reduced desflurane use by 50% and transitioned to other vapor anesthetics or Tiva, we saved the equivalent of 72 million driven miles, right? So when you're using isoflurane or sevaflurane, you're using, you know, one to 10 miles an hour, driven miles per hour of CO2 production. When you're using desflurane, it's a hundred times that. Wow. So um, I'm like, okay, it, it's not so bad if I drive to work and back in a day because I'm, you know, doing this. I, I will say I, ha I have an electric car and I mostly commute on my electric bike because I think it's not just at work, but at home that you have to take this seriously. But um, if you're using desflurane, you're like driving to LA every day in a gas guzzler. And it's really interesting to put it in that format for people to actually make it relatable because sometimes numbers aren't that helpful for certain people. But when you say this is the difference, obviously hearing a hundred times more damaging for the environment is 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 a big thing to say. But when you actually put it into the fact that 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 is the distance you could be driving, yeah, people really relate to that, and it, it, I think it can really resonate with people. And so that's really what's on our little sticker is that information about like. It's really translated into this is the it's like you're driving to L.A. Um, and then the, the other thing is nitrous, which I think people are using less and less. So that so you think, oh, that's great. And then several groups have now shown that if you look at nitrous use, uh, we're using way more nitrous. We're buying way more nitrous than we're actually using in patients because it turns out it leaks out of pipes. Um, and so having nitrous available in a piping system turns out to be having a huge impact on the environment. And nitrous has a, is a very bad greenhouse gas that lasts for like a hundred years. So it's not just like equivalent. And when you use nitrous, you're using 70% as opposed to 6% or 1%, right? So it's, it's more, and I don't know how much people know, but in anesthetics uh, they go to a scavenger and then they're just released to the atmosphere. Like there are people working on, could we recover them and reuse them? And there's lots of things you can do when you're using a, a vapor, like use low gas flow. So you're using less of it. Like, so everything always is complicated, but in general, that's what you do. So lots of hospitals, we're one of them. When we build new hospitals now, we're not building in nitrous piping. You can have a, you can have a tank on your machine and use it if you need it, but we're not going to make it fully widely available. What kind of response have you had within your own departments and at higher levels to the research that you're presenting? Um, it's been really interesting. We actually had Dr. Sherman come to do Grand Rounds probably five or six years ago um, and really presented the data on the harm of the environment and, and the vapors. And um, some of the people in my department were just like blown away by this and it really changed their practice. And I think it's becoming kind of more normal. And, and I think the more you educated about it, the better. Um, the other thing is, 
you know, when I look at it, it's a little bit like infection control. There's like 30,000 different things I could do to make us better, right? Like it's, so what we're trying to do is say, okay, Desperin is our number one target this week because it is like the number one harmful thing. Um, and then next I'm going to go after some of the disposables that we don't need. But then you get the pushback is like, I go, well, we, we should not be using reusable laryngoscopes. I mean, we should not be using single-use laryngoscopes. I'm happy to say we have not transitioned to that, but we've got a little bit of inroads during COVID, which was unfortunate. I don't think it changed any outcomes. Um, but what you hear back from people is, well, the light is so much better on those disposable laryngoscopes. And then I say, what if we invested in modern laryngoscopes? Because some of these laryngoscopes I know I've been using since I got here 15 years ago. Um, and the newer reusable laryngoscopes have great lights. Um, and in fact, in our new ambulatory care center, they bought really nice handles for that ambulatory care center um, that plug in on a USB every night. And so they're always bright and they always work. And that takes away that, oh, here's the advantage of this disposable. So a big part of it sounds like it's really navigating people's issues with that, that come up with some of these alternatives that are better. And actually, that's where the innovation again comes in with the manufacturing and the space for creating things that work really well, but are also kinder and safer for the environment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really think and I, I gave a talk at the Society for Technology and Anesthesia a couple months ago, and that was really my my message was, hey, will you guys go out? and innovate. We need things that can be reprocessed. And I would say industry currently is not focused on that, right? They're focused on things that don't need to be reprocessed to maximize uh, in, uh, their profit. But I think there is an opportunity for profit for the first companies that get into that reusability. A broader question I have is around the acceptance of climate change in general within the United States. At risk of sounding controversial, it's not too distant a memory that the previous president, Donald Trump, openly opposed the whole concept of global warming, referring to it as a hoax and denying that it was an issue. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that Donald Trump is a true representation of the American outlook on climate change, or that the UK have had the best track history in acknowledging the extent of the problem either. But I do know that his public comments led to immense scepticism for many Americans and populations around the world and some stalling in the progress in combating global warming. I'm interested to know if you've noticed a shift over time in perspective within the States and in the response to the work you do. <sighs> well, I live in Utah, uh, a fabulous state with five national parks and some of the most gorgeous natural resources you will ever find in the world. And I live in a state that um, in general has a lot of resistance to the idea of climate change and where uh, there's huge profit to be made taking natural resources out of the ground because we have a lot of them. They turn out to be in those beautiful wilderness spaces. Um, and so there's a short term, we can make a lot of money by getting more coal out versus long term, we can make a lot of money because tourists will come here. Um, and it, it has been very frustrating here. We certainly have people who drive their big pickup trucks that are built to spew toxic black smoke. Like that is a thing that people have. Uh, so that is that is problematic. And as you, you know, the politics of the US, um, our previous president certainly was an outlier in some ways, but also he was elected in part because he tapped into this people not wanting to believe in climate change. Um, and I will say uh, Salt Lake City is a bowl. We get inversions. Um, we have a giant salt desert out to the west of us and dust from that comes into the valley. We are in a cataclysmic drought, which also increases dust. We have a copper mine in the middle of our valley. We have oil refineries. We have lots of gravel pits. So when that aversion comes in, it traps all of our pollution, about 50% of which comes from automobile and truck traffic. So that would be a great thing. Um, and we often have the worst, especially in winter, the worst air quality in the world, not just the country, the world. So 
Um, and it has a huge impact on health here. Like people can see that when you have asthma, you get more asthma attacks during it. Lots of people have kids with asthma. We have schools that can't go outside to play on certain days because the air quality is so bad. Um, our legislature for various political reasons is far to the right of our population, although it's a very conservative population and they have been very resistant to these changes, but living in it turns out to be, and of course, many of our representatives come from outside of Salt Lake, although or outside of the Valley, 90% of our population or so, we have three and a half million people is in that Valley, but there are a lot of people who are in rural areas where there are no people and, um, and the rural areas have a lot of impact. Uh, but I will say I have seen the governor and the legislature starting to get kind of, you know, this is kind of bad because, hey, we've been in a business boom where everyone wants to move here, great quality of life. And now people are part, starting to say, but the air quality, do we really want people to be here in the valley? Um, and so I think that's causing pressure. So I have some hope that we're going to start making progress. I have a lot of concern that we've waited too long when I look at the drought out here and that it's not getting better. I mean, the reservoirs are like so empty. It's, uh, you know, look up Lake Powell, which is one of our big reservoirs. Um, and the water levels are so low that there's a new waterfall developing. So the American West is in crisis mode. Wow. When we talk about climate change and the impact of climate change, we tend to think um, the overarching impact tends to be in countries where, for example, in the global south, where we tend to say people that are contributing most to the actual damage that climate change is, is being caused by don't tend to be the people that are experiencing the true effects of it, which is driving this sort of cycle where when we can't see the effects that are happening, we're not willing to change it because we're not the ones being affected. But actually what you're talking about there is a country so powerful and rich as America actually having those tangible impacts right there and, and then. And yeah. that's, that's so interesting to think that despite that, there doesn't seem to be much work going on to, to stop that. I, I think it's starting to get some momentum, but what I worry about is, is it really too late to really make it, like now we're just mitigating the bad things. And it's not just, you know, wildfires, right? I don't know how much you pay attention to this, but the American West was on fire. And actually Utah had a great wildfire season last year, but it turns out all of the other wildfires from Vancouver and California and Oregon and Washington, Colorado, they all, the smoke funnels into the Salt Lake Valley and settles. So uh, it doesn't matter. Our summer weather now is terrible. It's hot. It's dry. And then if you look at the coast, especially the East Coast, hurricanes are worse. Um, water levels are rising. People are losing property. Um, so I, I think people may not want it to be true. There's still a little bit of, well, it's happening, but it's not human cause. So there's nothing we can do. But I think it's you know, now it's hitting us in the face. It's unfortunate that it's hitting us in the face, but maybe it'll cause some changes. And I know um, currently there's a lot of effort to change it, but- um, Is it enough? Yeah. Uh, it, it is sort of amazing when it affects you day to day, how much more you think, okay, I've really got to change my behavior. And that's the worry that I think a lot of scientists, climate activists have is that people won't start noticing until it is too late and there's so much in a, in a sense it is already too late in some respects but people don't quite realize it because they're not seeing the effects in their own lifetimes in their own lives and that's just an example that you've just said there that even now when people are re realizing it is too late and i will say uh, i have lived through plastic makes life easier right like so when I was a kid, plastic wasn't so much a thing. That's how old I am. And we had in our kitchen garbage can, we had our paper grocery bags and that's what we put our garbage in. And you can imagine it was always a mess, right? Like the paper gets wet and it leaks through. And then when I was a, a young kid, the plastic kitchen garbage bags started coming out and we just thought they were the best thing ever because you put them in and then they were just contained and you'd throw them away. So they, they made life easier, right? It's, hard for me. Like I've been like, oh, okay, we need to go away from plastic and start using, you know, those just putting stuff in the garbage bag and cleaning it every week or whatever we do. Um, and that's a really hard 
that is hard. To, it's hard to go backwards in convenience. And there are so many ways we've made our lives more convenient. I, can, I don't have to cook my own coffee or tea. I can just go to Starbucks. Uh, I don't because A, it's expensive and B, it's, it takes time. But like there's just a lot of places where people have gotten used to the convenience and it's just hard to go back because it's like it takes more of your day to do things in a smart way. And that's why it's almost exciting that there is this scope for new businesses to, to flourish, for example, to create a, a, a bag for the bin that isn't plastic, yes. but it is giving you the benefits of plastic. It's, it's There's hope in that, I mm-hmm. think. I agree. In, in the, the ideas of what could come from this and what innovation is, is going to be needed. I've heard you talk in interviews and you mentioned today as well about the different levels at which healthcare professionals can reduce their carbon emissions. We've already talked about the hospital and national international levels at which change can be implemented. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about personal level changes, some of which you mentioned about electric cars, cycling to work, your choices with choosing Starbucks. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, in my house, we've made a very concerted push towards sustainable energy production. We have solar panels that we got eight or nine years ago, I think. We have an electric car. We have a, a Tesla, Tesla Powerwall that collects our solar energy so that we can use it overnight. Um, I commute, and, and Salt Lake City, uh, my hospital is at 4,700 feet, which is whatever that is, 1,300 meters or something. It's high. My house is at 1500 uh about 1500 meters um it's 5300 it's mile high um it's only two and a half miles to work but it's 600 vertical feet that i have to go up so doing that on your own bike which i have done it's a lot but i got an um, electric bike and now we only have one car um and so i commute on my electric bike um you know, we, I, I was a kid during the um, energy crisis of the 70s when they were like, turn down your thermostat in the winter and up your thermostat in the summer. And so we do that, you know, wear a sweater around the house, right? So we try to kind of reduce energy consumption. Uh, we've changed out our light bulbs to the low energy that lasts forever light bulbs, recognizing there's all sorts of complexity to that. Um, I made a commitment not to use disposable water bottles, you know, the bottled water and I've largely kept to that. Every now and again, you're in a situation where, okay, I need water, but we carry water with us where we go. We um, uh, we, we got a little carbonator device, which makes, you know, we have beautiful tap water. It comes from the snow melt in the mountains, right? But people still kind of love that, but you carbonated, it tastes good. And I use loose leaf tea. I try to, you know, buy things in good packaging. I've tried to aim towards glass and not plastic. So I, I try and do all those things. And then I make an assessment of my life and realize that I am really falling short. Um, I am fortunate I don't care about fashion so I can keep, uh, you know, a blazer for 20 years and not worry about what I look like. I try to, you know, buy stuff like that. I think the biggest thing for me now that I think about my carbon footprint is going to conferences. I have a bunch of travel coming up in the next couple of weeks to go give talks. And boy, you know, during the pandemic, this, okay, we're going to do virtual or hybrid meetings. There's a lot to be said for clearly reduces your carbon footprint. It makes your life easier because you're not, especially coming from, you know, far West and going to the East coast takes the whole day of travel. Um, So that was great. I will say we haven't yet figured out how to to make those virtual meetings as satisfying as in-person meetings. Absolutely. There, but I, uh, on the other hand, a lot of standing committees that I'm on have gone to virtual and we're never going back because it's so much easier to get to them. And that is some travel around campus. And so, um, so I don't know, that's, that feels kind of like there's just so much, but I just try to be mindful everything I do. Like, am I wasting something I don't need to waste? Um, and I will also say when I get tired, when I have a busy week, I am definitely less concentrated on this than when I am having kind of a quiet week where I can say, okay, I'm not going to, you know, order in. I will also say, here's another dilemma I have. I want to keep our restaurants in business. Much of the year, it is not a good thing to sit outside and eat in the restaurant. I take out from restaurants. That's not really good for the environment. 
but it's good for my local businesses. So I don't know. And I notice that many of them are getting better about at least vaguely environmentally friendly packaging. I have some quick fire questions for you, Harriet. Sure. If you could give one key piece of advice to people about sustainable living, what would it be? Um, I think really that sustainability works best when it's your habit um, and you can't build it overnight. So you got to start small and just start building in things that are easy to do and then just make yourself comfortable with less convenience. What do you wish you knew sooner? Well, I talked about the paper grocery bags. I wished back in the 1960s when I was a kid, I had said, you know, no, we should not bring in plastic bags because once you've used them, it's really hard to go backwards. There's no going back. There's just no going back. I like the idea that people are going to, you know, generate some like biodegradable or better um, bags. I will say that we've tried some biodegradable bags and they are not there yet. What will you tell future generations about your role in the climate crisis? (sighs) You know, uh, it's very hard as a person who talks all the time about reducing our impact on the environment to acknowledge how much of that comes from, like how my own behavior has affected that. Yep, I love to travel. Yep, I like my plastic bags for some things. Yep, I do healthcare and I am not, you know, patient safety is my primary thing. And sometimes patient safety means I need to do this quick and I'm going to do the wrong thing in terms of the environment. So um, I think all, I think this is one of those things where if we can all acknowledge our contributions, it'll make it a lot better. And I think one of the areas of resistance is people don't like to be told that they're causing harm, right? I'm well-meaning. I am not trying to cause harm. And when you tell me you're trying to cause, you are causing harm. I just don't want to believe it. So I guess I'm saying we're sorry. Describe to us your vision of a greener world. So I just see, and this is very utopian, and um, I recognize all the things working against it, but that there's this rich collaboration between industry, approval organizations and accreditation organizations, clinicians, healthcare administrators, engineers, and they're going to develop easily and safely repossessable materials that do not materially change the experience of the clinician in their in their everyday work. Wouldn't that be nice? Sounds like that's what we need, really. It, it really is going to take such a multidisciplinary approach. It's definitely not something we can do by ourselves as healthcare professionals. Mm-mm. Can the health sector become truly sustainable? Uh, I think, well... Today, no. Next year, no. But I think in the future, probably we can. It's going to be a lot of work and it's going to take way more commitment than we currently have at every level. Um, And it really requires sort of rethinking everything we do and then purposefully incorporating environmental considerations into every decision that we make. Um, And, you know, one of the challenges in healthcare is it's not like we've got people sitting around going, oh, I don't have enough to do. I'm hoping for new jobs. Um, And so how do we make it the priority that makes us do that change? Harriet, it's been so interesting talking to you today, and it certainly encouraged me to question some methods that I've taken for gospel within the workplace. And that in light of the climate emergency that we're facing, we need to continue to challenge the systems that are contributing to it. So thank you so much for your time. And on a slightly different note, I'd like to also extend a thank you to you for the work you're doing around women in medicine, something that is so important and that we unfortunately just did not have time to discuss today. But thank you. But they're intersecting, right? Like, um, I think there's a lot of women driving this movement. And um, so anyway, thank you. I am grateful that equity is something that I have an opportunity to fight for. And uh, it's nice to be a senior person and not worried about whether someone cares what you think uh, or what you say and just feel free to just kind of advocate. So I'm glad you find that useful. Thank you so much, Harriet. Thank you. This was really fun. Eco 
Ecomedics is a non-profit organisation challenging health professionals and the healthcare industry to recognise the urgency of the climate crisis and to implement change to become sustainable. To stay up to date with our projects and events and for climate news and sustainability tips, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at eco underscore medics and sign up to our newsletter using the link below or by heading to newsletter.ecomedics.co.uk. Lastly, don't forget to check out our website www.ecomedics.co.uk where you can calculate your carbon footprint, carbon offset your unavoidable emissions, access step-by-step sustainability guides and buy from our non-profit shop with carefully selected sustainable partners. Ecomedics is run by a team of volunteers and all proceeds go into the running costs of the organisation. If you want to show your support, you can also donate by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash ecomedics. Thank you so much again for tuning in and don't forget to share this episode with friends and family and on social media. We look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode. Bye for now.